Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Cozy Christmas Podcast. Today is a special Christmas in July finale as we finish our story, The Christmas Hirelings by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. I hope you have enjoyed the story as much as I have enjoyed reading it to you. This is the third time I've read it. I only came across the story for the first time a couple of uh, years ago, but I've really enjoyed the process of reading it out loud and hearing it repeated several times as I edit and things. It's really just given me an even deeper understanding of the story. So thank you for listening. Thank you for all the positive feedback. Let's get right to our story today. So I invite you to make yourself comfortable, settle down by the Christmas fire with your favorite Christmas beverage, and I'll read you another Christmas story. The Christmas Hirelings by Mary Elizabeth Braddon Chapter 7 There could be no doubt about Moppet's affection for Sir John Penlyon. It was not cupboard love. Self-interest had nothing to do with it. The child's young fancies centered in the grave elderly man who had so kindly and protecting an heir when she nestled by his side in his roomy armchair, or squeezed herself close up against him at the breakfast or the luncheon table. Sir John would have been more or less than human had he not been flattered by this preference. She liked him better than she liked Danby, yet she had known Danby for the whole of her life. And Danby was her slave, would crawl on all fours for her, simulating anything zoological she might choose to order, would carry her on his shoulder for a mile on end, and studied her desires in the toy world with a reckless disregard of expense. She was fond of Danby, but not so fond as she was of Sir John. You're so very grand, she explained always, patting her new friend on his shoulder. She seemed to have a precocious appreciation of this personal grandeur. For certainly Sir John Penlyon had the grand air which impresses society in general. To Moppet's fancy, he absorbed into himself all the dignity of his surroundings. The portly black-coated butler, the handsome liveries and powdered heads of the footmen, the space and splendor of the house, the wide-reaching parks and grounds, and those farms which stretched so far away that Moppet, asking ever so many times in a morning walk, are all these fields yours? Had hardly ever been answered in the negative. You are like the Marquis of Carabas, only it's all true instead of fibs, said Moppet. And in her small, half-conscious way, Moppet admired the baronet's tall, erect figure, his handsome features, the gray hair and beard, and the strongly marked black eyebrows, which gave such character to the face. Once, when some discussion as to personal beauty arose, Moppet expressed herself decisively. You are very pretty, she told him, quite the prettiest of us all. Would you like to be as pretty when you grow up, Moppet? he asked. Of course not, you silly man. I am going to be a young lady and wear frocks like hers. Pointing to Adela's low bodice, how funny I should look with a beard like yours. Sir John accepted her flatteries laughingly and owned to Danby that the little hireling amused and interested him. But he questioned his friend no further as to her belongings. He seemed content to accept her as a waif from afar, who was to vanish out of his home as quietly as she had entered there, leaving no trace behind. We are to go home on the seventh day of the new year, 
she informed him, gravely one morning, in a pause of his letter writing. It was her privilege, obtained by sheer persistence, to sit in his room while he wrote his letters. She pledged herself to silence and stillness, and she would sit upon her hassock in a corner by the fire, playing with her dolls for an hour at a time, without a word spoken above a whisper, so low that not a sound reached him at his writing table. But, looking at her sometimes, he would see the little red lips moving rapidly, and he knew that an elaborate make-believe conversation was going on between Moppet and her dolls. "'Will you be glad to go away?' he asked. "'Sorry to go away, but glad to go back to mother,' she answered, looking up at him with clear, truthful eyes. "'Will you be sorry when I am gone?' "'I'm afraid I shall, Moppet, but I shall have to get over it. I have had to get over worse sorrows than that.' One day, Adela Hauberk came into the drawing-room excitedly in the quiet quarter of an hour before dinner, when the children had vanished into the deep silence of Bedfordshire. "'Uncle, I have just made a discovery,' she exclaimed. "'Indeed? And what may that be?' "'Moppet is the living image of the shrimp girl. Not so pretty, but extraordinarily alike. Have you only just found that out?' only five minutes ago, coming through the gallery. "'I have seen the likeness for a long time,' replied Sir John quietly, "'and I think,' with a curious emphasis, "'Danby must have observed it also.' Mr. Danby blushed. Mr. Danby blushed, but held his peace, and the butler's announcement of dinner closed the conversation. The shrimp girl was a fancy portrait of Sir John Penland's great-aunt Priscilla by Sir Joshua Reynolds, and almost as famous as the strawberry girl at Summerlee. Well-informed people who were shown over Place House always made a point of asking to see the shrimp girl. It was a picture that had been written about by art critics, and it had been exhibited some winters ago among the old masters at Burlington House. The little girl was painted sitting on the sands in a reddish-brown frock. With bare head and bare feet, a shrimping net in her hand, a gypsy hat with blue ribbons lying by her side, a pretty rustic picture of a not particularly pretty child in the painter's grandest, boldest, most supremely natural manner, and the little girl looked almost as much alive as Moppet herself. There was a likeness, undoubtedly, the dark, gray, deep-set eyes, the overhanging forehead and sensitive mouth, the dimples and mutinous smile were all suggestive of Moppet. But when the subject was reopened by Adela later in the evening, Sir John would not allow any discussion about it. "'All children of the same age and complexion are alike,' he said curtly, and Mr. Danby plunged into the conversation with an entirely new theme. There were no more complaints about a green Christmas after that evening in the schoolhouse. The first fall of snow had been the herald of a severer winter than had been known in that western extremity of England, for at least ten years. The young people were glad, and the old people were sorry. For the young there were the novel pleasures of skating and hockey on the ice. For the old there was the fear, and in many cases the reality, of bronchitis. And fuel was dearer, and life was harder, by as many degrees as the quick silver sank in the thermometer. For one little person in this big, busy world, that wintry season seemed a time of unalloyed delight. Moppet's little red legs trotted over the hard roads and along the narrow footpaths, 
which the gardeners had swept in park and gardens, almost always trotting beside other and older footsteps, the little red woolly hand almost always held in the warm grip of Sir John's buckskin glove, age and childhood consorting in a curious companionship. Together, Sir John and his little friend visited all the striking features of the neighborhood. They stood together upon Tintagel's wind-blown height and watched the white-breasted gulls holding their parliament on the long, low lines of smooth, dark rock round which the spray danced and the emerald-green water tumbled so merrily. Moppet loved those bold and perilous heights. I should be afraid if I was here quite alone, or even with Miss Hauberk, she explained, but I'm not a bit afraid with you. And indeed, the tenderest and most experienced of nurses could not have been more careful of a tiny charge than was Sir John Penlyon. Did you ever have any little girls of your own? Moppet asked him one day. Yes, Moppet, once upon a time. And did you love them very, very, very much? With intense emphasis. Ever so much better than you love me? Love cannot be measured offhand, Moppet. It is a long time since I had any little girls of my own. I am very glad of that, said Moppet, and Sir John was glad that she had asked no further questions. He took her to Pentargon Bay to see the seals, and would have been very pleased to show her those creatures had there been any on view, but as there were none visible to the naked eye, he could only tell her about the ways and habits of the seal tribe, and he took her down to the beach and prowled about with her between the caves and the sea, and she was full of interest and excitement. Playing quietly in the library next morning, while Sir John wrote his letters, he saw that she had made a kind of tent of Whitaker's almanac, and had put three or four old gold seals, those ponderous gold and cornelian seals of the eighteenth century, in this tent, and was contemplating them with evident satisfaction. "'What new game is that, Moppet?' he asked. "'I am playing at seals.' "'But those seals are not a bit like the animals I told you about yesterday. I know that. Only I can make believe they are nice, soft, hairy animals, with funny, blunt noses, living on land and in water. They are seals, you know.' That is a tremendous stretch for your small imagination. Small imagination, quoth. The dark, deep-set eyes gazing up at him indicated a power of imagination, rare even among men and women. The ice on the pond in the park was pronounced to be in perfect condition one bright morning, and Adela Hauberk gave herself up to the delight of skating with a little party of genteel youths from the neighborhood. It was an ice carnival in a small way. Hot drinks and other refreshments were sent from Place House. The villagers came to look on. Mr. Danby was in his glory, cutting figures upon the ice and taking care of the children, who had a slide in a corner upon which they slid and tumbled untiringly, with much noise of shrill voices and happy laughter. It was nearly dark when they all went back to the house, Moppet upon Danby's shoulder. There was only time for a very noisy tea at which Moppet's excitement and conversational powers were tremendous before the journey to Bedfordshire. "'I hope the sea will be frozen by the time we are home with Mother,' said Moppet, as she was carried off. Laddie and Lassie went back to the pond next day with Miss Hobart, but Moppet was reported to have a cold and was kept indoors. She did not rebel against this decree, but was quite contented to sit on her hassock in her favorite corner by Sir John's fireside with her dolls and Christmas toys spread about her on the hearthrug. 
Looking up now and then from his letters, Sir John saw that she was not as busy with her dolls as usual. She sat very quietly, with her head leaning against the marble column of the chimney piece, and her favorite doll, the one she had christened Mary, lying in her lap. I'm afraid my moppet is not very well today, he said. Oh, yes, I am very well, but I've got a little cold. People don't take powders for colds, she added hastily. They only stay indoors and keep themselves warm. I am very warm, thank you. She screwed herself still closer into her snug corner by the fire, and he saw her eyelids droop heavily over the tired eyes. Certainly Moppet was not quite herself today. Her eyes were very dull, and her voice was thick, but everybody knows that these are the common symptoms of the common cold. Sir John would not allow himself to be uneasy about an everyday childish ailment. When the luncheon gong sounded, she told him she did not want any dinner, and would rather stay where she was. He compromised the matter by ordering a tray to be brought, and the old housemaid Sarah appeared with roast mutton and rice pudding, and tried her best to coax the child to eat, but Moppet stuck to her text. No thank you, Sarah. I'm sure it's very nice, but I'd rather not have any of it till tomorrow, she said. The day wore on to evening the premature evening of those dark days after Christmas, and still Moppet sat in the corner fast asleep. Sir John had taken the velvet pillows from his sofa and had made a luxurious little nest for the child in the angle of the projecting chimney piece, a warm nook where the fire glow could not scorch her face. Here she slept, breathing very heavily, till Mr. Danby came to look for her at afternoon tea time. The footman came in with a lamp immediately after him, and Sir John started up from his forty winks in his big armchair on the opposite side of the hearth. He had been giving himself a holiday in the dusk of the evening. "'Come, Moppet,' said Mr. Danby, kneeling down beside the child. "'Aren't you ready for tea? Why, what a cozy little bed you've made for yourself, and what a lazy little puss you are!' The eyelids were lifted languidly. The dark gray eyes looked at him wearily as if they hardly recognized the familiar face. "'I don't want any tea,' said the small voice piteously. "'I want to stay here. Please go and take care of the others.' She coughed with a short, dry cough that alarmed Mr. Danby's ear. He knew much more about children and their ailments than Sir John Penlyon, old bachelor. "'I'm afraid my moppet is ill,' he said. "'I'm afraid my moppet is ill,' he said gravely lifting the weary little figure into a chair opposite Sir John's, where the lamplight shone full upon flushed cheeks and swollen eyelids. He felt the little wrist. Alas, the pulse was galloping faster than any horse in Sir John's stables had ever galloped, galloping on the road that leads to wild fancies and strange delusions and all the terrors of fever. The child's forehead is burning! He felt the little languid hands. They too were scorched with fever. "'It's nothing very bad,' exclaimed Moppet. "'I've often been feverish before.' But the little choking cough which interrupted even this short speech, the quick panting breath, and the vivid crimson flush gainsaid Moppet's reassuring words. Mr. Danby took her up in his arms. "'She must go to bed this instant,' he said. "'You'd better send off at once for the doctor, Jack. "'I'm very sorry to have brought this trouble upon you.' "'I'm very sorry the child should be ill.' said Sir John, ringing the bell furiously. "'Please don't be unhappy about me,' gasped Moppet as she was carried off, 
looking back at Sir John from the threshold and waving a hot little hand in affectionate leave-taking. I'm not going to be very bad. Children are so soon up and down, you know, but I'm afraid I shall have to be pult poultices were the word. Before midnight, the whole household was concerned about Moppet's poultices. The doctor had been at place three times since tea time, and a nurse had been telegraphed for, for Moppet was down with acute congestion of the lungs, and as the evening darkened into night, the symptomatic fever began its dreary effect upon the childish brain, and Moppet's wits were wandering in strange places, and strange visions were passing before those shining, glassy eyes, which seemed to see nothing of the real people about her bed, the serious upper housemaid who put on the poultices, or Adela Hauberk, always ready with lemonade for the thirsty lips, or the doctor bending gravely down to listen to the laborious movement of the chest, or to take the patient's temperature. Little French phrases dropped from the dry lips now and then, and it was clear that the child fancied herself in France again, and very often there were appealing cries to mother, which smote Sir John's heart with intolerable pain, as he stood there just inside the door of the spacious bedroom, hidden from Moppet by the tall four-leaved screen which sheltered the bed from the hazard of drafts. The little life was trembling in the balance, he told himself, though the doctor had sounded no note of alarm, had indeed been quite cheerful about his small patient. It's rather a sharp attack, he told Sir John, but children generally take kindly to congestion of the lungs. This child is so fragile. Fragile? Not a bit of it, interrupted Mr. Nichols. Wiry, not fragile. There's a great deal of brain, rather too much brain, perhaps. The dull child has always a better chance than the clever child. But I hope this one will do very well. It's all a question of nursing. The trained nurse will be here tomorrow morning, and in the meantime, all my instructions are being carried out by Miss Hauberk and the maid. They were thus distinctly assured that there was no danger, yet nobody at Penlyon seemed inclined to go to bed that night. One o'clock struck with the sound of ghostly solemnity, which belongs particularly to the single solitary stroke of the first hour after midnight. Two o'clock struck, and Sir John and Mr. Danby sat reading by the drawing-room fire, pretending not to know how late it was. At half-past two, Adela came fluttering in to tell them that Moppet was asleep, very feverish still, and still with short and painful breath, but sleeping. That was in itself a cause for rejoicing. After this hopeful news, Sir John discovered the lateness of the hour, and he and Mr. Danby bade each other good night. I'm very sorry the child is ill. Uh, for, for your sake, Danby, he said. I know how fond you are of her. Yes, I could not be fonder of her, and it may be my fault that she is ill. I hate myself for having kept her so long in that east wind, but she was so happy. She was enjoying herself so thoroughly. I never dreamt of danger. Don't talk of danger. Nichols says she will be better tomorrow, and if she isn't better, we'll get some great man from London. But I have faith in our Bowcastle doctor. He has a great deal of experience and plenty of sound common sense, and he has no antiquated notions. But we'll telegraph for a physician tomorrow morning, even though the child be better. We won't waste time, added Sir John, uneasily. It was wonderful to see him so strongly moved by the waif's illness, he who was supposed to have outlived every gentle emotion. He sent his telegram by a mounted messenger before seven o'clock, 
a telegram addressed to Dr. South, the famous children's doctor, entreating him to travel by the express from Waterloo, which would arrive at Launceston before six o'clock. A carriage would be waiting for him at the station to bring him over the moor to Penlyon. We'll have the highest authority, Sir John said to Mr. Danby, who came into his room just as the servant carried off the message. We must not have to reproach ourselves with neglect, if... He did not finish the sentence, but bent over his writing table to arrange the papers, which he had thrust aside when he wrote his telegram. It was not seven o'clock yet, and the master of Penlyon Place was in his dressing gown. His valet would not come to him till eight, but sleep had been impossible, and the only relief was in moving about his room by the ghastly morning candlelight, while Danby, who was fully dressed, stood looking at him. "'Danby!' cried Sir John, presently, stopping in his slow pacing up and down. "'You look as if you hadn't been in bed all night.' "'I haven't much.' "'Danby, you are a fool, a fidgety old fool. "'You heard what Nichols said about children. "'They generally take kindly to congestion of the lungs.' "'Yes, I heard him, and I have heard her breathing. "'One might take kindly to a wolf sitting on one's chest.' but one would rather not have him there. Take kindly. That's a doctor's phrase for struggling through a painful malady. The child survives where the adult might succumb, but in the meantime there's acute suffering to be borne somehow. And Moppet is so patient. One feels angry with Providence for punishing such a little creature. Mr. Danby escaped hurriedly from the room, but Sir John heard something like a sob, before the doors shut behind him. "'What fools we are!' he muttered. "'All this fuss and anxiety about a child. "'But all the London slums are choked with children "'whose future maintenance is problematical. "'One child less or more upon this teeming earth. "'What difference ought that to make? "'A creature that has only just begun to think and to feel? "'Why, less than five years ago there is no such thing as Moppet.' And now I believe Danby thinks the world would be empty without her. Danby. Was it only Mr. Danby who was so foolishly anxious about that little life struggling with illness? Who was it who walked up and down the terrace in the early morning, watching for the coming of the doctor? Who was it who followed the doctor to the door of the sick room and waited outside in the corridor till he came out again, waited with aching heart, in a sick dread of hearing bad news. The news was bad. Mr. Nichols found Moppet worse today than yesterday. If you would like a second opinion, he began. I have telegraphed for Dr. South, Sir John answered curtly, and have had his reply. He will be here this evening. Of course, I have no objection to meet a man of Dr. South's distinction. Objection? As if this country doctor's feelings and the petty restrictions of medical etiquette were to be studied when that little life was wavering in the balance, weighed in a balance so fine that a hair might turn it. Oh, that long, dreadful day of waiting and suspense. Mr. Nichols came many times in the day. Indeed, he only drove hither and thither on hurried journeys to see his other patients, and then came back to Penlyon Place, making that his headquarters. The child showed no signs of improvement as the day wore on. There was a hush throughout the house, almost as if death were already there. While Danby and Adela went about with pale faces, too restless and anxious for settled occupation of any kind, 
Their talk was all of the child, and of different cases of childish illness, out of which the patient had come triumphantly. If they had ever known of fatal cases, they did not mention those. And all through the sunny morning and the short afternoon, Laddie and Lassie were at play on a little lawn in front of the library, and a long way from the sick child's room, a spot whence no sound of those shrill young voices could reach her. They had one of the women's servants to look after them, and to see that they did not catch cold, and they had their shuttlecocks and battledores and bats and balls and hoops from their treasury of Christmas gifts, and were as full of life and spirits as if there were no such thing as suffering in the world. Sir John almost hated these small egotists, flushed and happy under the cloudless blue of a bright winter sky. Lassie skimming across the little lawn like a scarlet bird, Laddie skipping and bounding about like a boy on wires, never still. Sir John looked so worried when they approached him that Mr. Danby, quick to read all his old friend's feelings, ordered their early dinner in the housekeeper's room instead of at the family luncheon table. They were treated all through the day as if they were in disgrace, and nobody took any notice of them. Towards the evening they grew fractious and fretful, and began to feel really sorry that Moppet was ill, or that things in general had become uncomfortable. "'I should like to go home to mother,' said Lassie. "'So should I,' agreed Laddie. "'It's no fun being here when there's only servants to play with.' "'We shan't have such nice dinners when we get home,' mused the girl. "'We shall have rice pudding some days and potato soup some days, "'but not always fowls and tarts and creams and junket like we do here.' "'Who cares?' cried the boy with a dash of defiance. "'You care very much,' retorted his sister with vigorous assertion. "'It is a story to say you don't. You know you're much the greediest of us. You quite love your dinner. So do you. So does everybody that is hungry. Everybody except mother. She never cares. She likes us to have all the nice things and pretends she doesn't want any.' And so, squabbling, but not unfriendly, and talking to each other through the open door between the two rooms, Laddie and Lassie dropped asleep, and their brief day was done, while to those elders below stairs who waited for the London physician, it seemed hardly evening. Sir John sat in the library, just where he had sat when the notion of the Christmas hirelings was first mooted, with the monthly timetable of the London and Southwestern Railway open on his knee. He had looked at it a dozen times within the last hour to see how soon Dr. South could arrive. It was night when there came that thrilling sound of carriage wheels, thrilling when every nerve is strained in expectation of some particular guest, and Sir John went out to the hall to receive the doctor. Then came the examination of the patient, and then the consultation within closed doors. How long, how infinitely long it seemed those who waited. Danby, Adela, and Sir John were in the drawing room, having given up the library to the doctors. They sat with the door wide open, listening for the opening of that other door which should announce the end of the consultation. It would be like the entrance of the jury after a trial of life and death. They were waiting for the verdict, waiting to know whether Moppet was to die. At last the door opened, with the sonorous sound of a massive oaken door two hundred years old, and the two doctors came across to the drawing-room where Sir John stood waiting for them on the threshold. 
Well? he asked. Dr. South gave a faint sigh before he answered that monosyllabic question. The child is gravely ill, he said. We are going to do all that can be done. Mr. Nichols thoroughly understands the case. There has been no time lost, no measure omitted. But I cannot disguise the fact from you. The child is gravely ill. Mr. Nichols told us that children generally take kindly to inflammation of the lungs. Uh, the generality of children. But this is a peculiar child, a child of a very excitable temperament, with a preponderancy of brain. The mind here tells against the body. Everything will be done, but there is danger. But there is danger, interrupted Sir John. Yes, there is danger. I should do very wrong not to admit that. Has the child no mother? Not for a moment did the physician mistake Adela Haberg for the child's mother, though Adela might have been taken for any age between twenty and twenty-five, and thus seem quite old enough to be the mother of Moppet. The doctor's keen eye saw at a single glance that this pretty young lady in the evening frock was not the sick child's mother. She was anxious and tearful and sympathetic, but the white despair, the agony of suspense and terror, that look of the wild animal at bay, and ready to fight for the menaced life of her young, which he knew in the mother's eye, was lacking here. This pretty young lady was bound by no such close tie as motherhood to the little creature struggling for breath in the room above. The little girl's mother is living, answered Mr. Danby. Ought she to be sent for? Undoubtedly. I hope she is not very far off. That last sentence sounded like Moppet's death warrant. She is in London. I thought she was in France, muttered Sir John with a curious downcast look. I hope she is in London by this time. I telegraphed to her yesterday. I told her the child was ill, but not dangerously ill, and that she had better come as far as Plymouth in case of any change for the worse. Shall you know where to find her in Plymouth? asked Dr. South. Yes, she will expect a telegram at the post office. Good. Then get your message dispatched as soon as you can. It's a pity you didn't tell her to come straight here, said Sir John. Mr. Danby accepted the reproof in silence. Sir John led the way to the dining room, where dinner was waiting for the traveler from London and the household doctor. Dr. South was to spend the night at Penlyon, and was to be driven to Lanston next morning in time for the earliest train. There would doubtless be a change in the patient by the morning, either for better or worse. If the change were for worse, it would most likely be the last change of all, and the mother would arrive too late to clasp her living child even in a farewell embrace. Danby exclaimed Sir John, severely, when he and his old friend had gone back to the library. In God's name, why did you not tell the mother to come straight through as fast as rail and coach could bring her? I did not like, faltered Danby. I, I had no right to summon her to this house without your permission. You might have asked my permission. No, 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 exclaimed Danby agitatedly. I wanted it to be spontaneous. I, I could not introduce the subject... Pshaw! What matters it to me who comes or goes while that child is laying at death's door? cried Sir John fiercely. 
I should not see the person. It is of the child, I think, the child only. She was calling her mother today when I was in the room. So sweet, so loving, so sensible. She kissed me again and again with her feverish lips as I bent over her bed. She knew me perfectly. Yet there was a touch of delirium, and she called to her mother as if she were in the room. That made my heart ache, Danby. Well, the mother will be here tomorrow, I hope. I telegraphed to her yesterday. After Nichols had seen the child for the second time, I fancied he was a little uneasy about her. Though he wouldn't own it. So I just walked into Bowcastle and telegraphed to uh, the mother. She would be quick to take alarm, I dare say. Though I only told her that her youngest was laid up with a severe cold, and she could come to Plymouth if she felt anxious, so as to be within easy reach. I had a reply a few hours after to say she was leaving for Folkestone by the boat. She is at Plymouth by this time, I have no doubt. Folkestone, muttered Sir John. Then the place those children talk about is Boulogne. Yes, it is, Boulogne. A very good place, too, for a widow with a small family. They can live as cheaply there as anywhere and in fine fresh air. Sir John made no comment upon this, but sat absorbed and silent by the neglected fire, and then rose restlessly, walked about the room, took a book from the shelves, taking pains to find a particular volume, opened, glanced at it, and threw it aside. His face had a look of listening, and often in his pacing to and fro he stopped to open the door, and stood for a few moments, holding it ajar, as if waiting for someone. They had moved Moppet to one of the principal bedrooms at the top of the grand staircase, the spacious chamber in which the most important guests had always been installed when there was a house party at Penlyon. This stateroom had been aired and warmed and prepared in hot haste for the tiny visitor, when it was found that Moppet's bad cold was going to be a serious illness. It was chosen as the largest, airiest room in the large, airy house, and Mr. Nichols highly approved the arrangement though he had not advised it. Laddie and Lassie had their two rooms all to themselves, and, light-hearted and forgetful as they were in their morning play, in the silence and solitude of the after-bedtime affection prevailed over egotism, and Lassie and Laddie each shed a few tears for their missing sister. "'Do you think she'll be quite well tomorrow?' questioned Lassie, sitting up in bed and calling to her unseen brother in the adjoining room. I'm afraid not. Sarah says she's very bad, and that when Sarah's little niece had the same complaint, she died. But then Sarah's little niece had a neglectful mother, Sarah says. Muppet has no mother at all now, said Lassie, dolefully. Oh, I wish mother was here. I wish we were all at home. I don't want Muppet to die. What will mother do if Muppet dies, and she has only us? She'd be very miserable with only us, replied Laddie, with a voice that was muffled by distance in bedclothes, and perhaps a little by sleepiness. We're so big, and, and mother's so fond of little children. We must be very, very, very good, and very, very, very kind to mother if Moppet should die, Lassie said conclusively. And then, after a pause, she inquired, Should we have to go into mourning? You would, of course, because you're a girl, but I shouldn't. There's no such thing as boys' mourning, stupid, replied Laddie, awakened by what he considered a futile question. Fancy a boy playing football in mourning, or cricket. 
but Moppet isn't going to die. There's a doctor from London come to cure her. Sarah said his... What is it they give doctors? Questioned Laddie, suddenly at fault. His... Free, that's it. Sarah said his free would be two hundred guineas, down on the nail. I heard her tell the other housemaids so. What does down on the nail mean? Asked Lassie, more interested in that mysterious phrase than in the coming of the medical Alcides. Unable to explain and really sleepy, Laddie pretended to be actually asleep. He threw a little extra power into his breathing and the imitation soon became reality. The night wore on, another night on which people pretended to forget the hour, and no one thought of going to bed. It was felt that Dr. South's presence in the house was a tower of strength, a rock of defense against the great enemy. Indeed, Sir John had reason to think so when, stealing with cautious footfall to Moppet's room in the dead of night, he saw the physician sitting at the bottom of the bed watching for the result of his treatment. Dr. South came down to the drawing room half an hour afterward and found Sir John and his friend sitting forlornly, far apart, like people who had nothing to say to each other. It was between three and four o'clock. The clusters of candles on the mantelpiece had burnt down to the sockets, and one of the lamps had gone out. Adela had been sent off to bed an hour before, very reluctant to go, and indeed had been met by the doctor in the corridor in her dressing gown, hanging about for news of the child. Oh, Dr. South, you don't think she's going to die, do you? She asked piteously. I think we're trying very hard to save her, my dear young lady, and with God's help we may prevail, answered the doctor gravely, and with this assurance Adela was fain to be content. Those clinging arms and the showers of kisses that were like the bubbling up of childish love from a deep fountain of tenderness. Those bright eyes and dimpling smiles had endeared the little hireling to the light-hearted young woman as well as to the worn-out elderly man. The night wore on. It was five o'clock before the doctor would go to the room that had been prepared for him and where the fire had been made up again and again by the housemaid who sat up all night to wait upon the sick room. Mr. Danby had to remind him of his long journey tomorrow actually today, after his long journey of today, actually yesterday. But Dr. South made light of the matter. He could always sleep in the train. He made his final visit to Moppet's bedside at five and went to bed, leaving instructions that he should be called instantly if there were any change for the worse. This night, with the knowledge of danger staring them full in the face, neither Sir John nor Danby went to bed at all. Danby! Sir John said vehemently, stopping suddenly in front of the despondent figure seated far away from the neglected fire. You had no right to do this thing. What thing? Danby asked, looking up at him confusedly. You had no right to bring that little child here and let me love her. Let her grow into an old man's heart. Think what sorrow you have made for me, a sorrow at the end of my life. If she is to die. She shan't die, cried Danby. We're making a good fight of it anyhow. I tell you she shan't die, he repeated huskily. I'm going upstairs now, just to listen at her door. I won't go in. I won't risk waking her with the opening of the door, but I may hear something. The nurse may be stirring or the maids may be in the corridor. 
It is agonizing to sit here and not know if things are going well or ill. Mr. Danby went out like a ghost, and Sir John waited in the hall while his slow, soft steps ascended the stairs. He came down again in about a quarter of an hour. He had seen one of the maids, who told him Moppet was a little less restless than she had been earlier in the night. He and Sir John made the most of this news, and at the first glimmer of the gray, cold day, they both went to their dressing rooms to make bath and toilet serve instead of sleep. Breakfast was to be at half-past eight for Dr. South, who was to leave Penlyon at nine. Sir John met Lassie on his way to the breakfast room, very neat and prim in her warm Sergei frock, quite the elder sister. Lassie was to be six in May, a fact of which she informed people gravely, as if she were coming into a fortune at that date. Six years old, it is not every little girl who is soon going to be six. Poor little things who are only four look towards that dignified age across the desert of intervening years. Lassie had learnt to tie her petticoat strings and put on her stockings and even to button her boots in anticipation of her approaching dignity. Mother says I must be very useful when I am six, she told her friends. Lassie ran to Sir John and put her hand into his, looking up at him piteously. Mayn't we have breakfast with you, as we used to before Moppet was ill? she asked. Please don't send Laddie and me to the housekeeper's room. We haven't been naughty, have we, Sir John? No, no, my dear. You and Laddie are very good children. Only... He stopped with a troubled air, looking down at the small face that looked so imploringly up at his, as if he were providence personified. He could not tell her that... While Moppet's little life trembled in the balance, she and her brother were almost hateful to him. If Moppet were to die, he would prefer the world to be altogether empty of children. The voices and the faces of children would torture him with bitterest memories and regrets. You may come to breakfast with us, Lassie, but you and your brother must be very quiet. We are all of us anxious and a little unhappy about your sister. She will get well, won't she? Lassie asked with a touch of deep distress. We hope so, my dear. Laddie was skipping about in front of the great hall window, keenly interested in a solitary fly that was buzzing drowsily and knocking itself feebly against the glass. Laddie came bounding across to Sir John presently and said, Please, may we have breakfast with you? We had no cream yesterday morning. How's Moppet? All in a breath. Sir John frowned upon him darkly and did not answer, but Laddie, seeing his sister go to the breakfast room hand in hand with their host, skipped airily after them, asking no further questions. Adela came down early in her very plainest tailor-made gown, but with her hair dressed as elaborately as usual. Harup, the maid, would hardly have neglected that beautiful auburn hair in the midst of direst calamity. Laddie and Lassie nestled on either side of the young lady, and soon began to prattle to her and to each other across her, in low voices which grew louder by degrees. If you talk so loud, you will be sent away, Adela murmured warningly. But, but why mustn't we talk? Moppet can't hear us upstairs in that big, big room. It's like being in church. Is it always like this when people are ill? interrogated Laddie. When people are feeling unhappy, they like to be very quiet. People who are unhappy don't like anything. Unhappiness is disliking, 
argued the boy with the air of an infant, Socrates. Are you unhappy? asked Lassie. I am very anxious. Then, then you think she will die? urged Lassie, searchingly. No, no, no. You must not say such things. Pray be quiet, children. Dr. South is just going. There was a little movement and talk in a quiet leave-taking. Sir John and Mr. Danby both went to the hall door to see the physician drive away. He had done or advised all that science could do for the little girl who was fighting so bitter a battle, and he left them not utterly hopeless. The outlook is brighter today than it was last night, he said finally. But I mustn't promise too much. We are not out of the wood yet. Please let me have an occasional telegram to say how she is going on. She is a dear little child, a most winning little child. I have seen the loveliest children who did not interest me half so much as that quaint little face of hers. With the large forehead and the dark, deep-set eyes, I hope her mother will be here today. Sir John did not respond to that last speech, and Dr. South stepped into the useful station brougham and was driven away by the useful upstanding horses. It is a good day's work for any pair of horses to post from Penlyon Place to Lanston and back again. The day wore on towards evening without any marked change in the sick room. Moppet was living and suffering, and Dr. Nichols and the nurse were carrying out Dr. South's thoughtful treatment with the utmost care. All that science and forethought could do for the child was being done, as Mr. Danby remarked at least a dozen times in the course of the day. He was walking with Sir John on the terrace early in the afternoon when the carriage that had taken Dr. South to Lanston drove up to the hall door. The coachman had been ordered to watch the arrival of trains for a strange lady who was to come from Plymouth and to bring that strange lady to place. Mr. Danby had given the man his instructions as to the style and appearance of the lady for whom he was to look out. The bell rang, the carriage door was opened, and a lady alighted, a tall, slim figure in a dark cloak, a pale face under a neat black bonnet. Mr. Danby stood hesitatingly as she went quickly up the steps, he and Sir John being distant from the door by about twenty yards. "'Aren't you going to her?' asked Sir John sternly. "'I, yes, of course, yes, but won't you see her before she goes to the child?' "'See her? No!' with his darkest frown. "'Why should I see her? She comes here to see her child. For that and for that alone. Go and look after her, Danby. You must consider her your guest.' Danby gave him a distressed look and was hurrying off, when he stopped suddenly and went back to Sir John fumbling in his waistcoat pocket as he drew near. Stay, he said agitatedly. There is something I ought to have thought of before the lady entered your house. Taking a folded, taking a folded paper out of his letter case. Your check. There it is, and it has never left my pocket since you gave it to me. The hiring was a fiction. I wanted you to know those children, and I planned the thing on the spur of the moment. You wanted to break my heart, said Sir John, and it's quite likely that you will realize your wish. No, no, I wanted to prove to you that you have a heart. Go and look after your friend. Mr. Danby went out. Mr. Danby went one way, Sir John the other, and the check to bearer for one hundred guineas was torn up and scattered upon the thin cold air.
deep and deeper into the heart of the park, where the wind-blown oaks all lent away from the west, went Sir John Penlyon, full of grief and anger. Grief for the child who might die, anger against the friend who had brought her there. The meddling officious fool! I was happy enough. I had got over the wrench that I felt when that shameless girl disobeyed me. My life was barren, but it was peaceful. What more did I want? What more? What did he want now? Only the little clinging arms around his neck, the soft little cheek pressed against his own, the silvery little voice prattling gaily to him, inquiring, philosophizing, laying down the law, as if the four-year life were full to the brim of wisdom and experience. He wanted Moppet. He cared nothing for the tall young woman whom he had seen pass hurriedly under that dignified portal which she was never to have passed again. His affection had concentrated itself upon this morsel of humanity, brought into his house by a trick, a ridiculous trick of this interfering wretch Danby. Moppet's mother was sitting by her bedside. Moppet was better already. Only the sight of the familiar face, only the touch of the motherly hands, had done her good. This was the account which Adela gave Sir John when he went back to the house after dark. The mother seems quite a nice person, said Adela. She has very sweet manners and must have been very pretty. But of course her every thought is devoted to that dear little thing. There has been no time for talk of any kind. She won't come down to dinner. Mr. Danby has arranged that she shall have the dressing room opening out of Moppet's room to sit in and the bedroom next to Moppet's to sleep in. We shan't see her down here yet a while. So much the better, said her uncle curtly. Oh, I can understand what a bore it must be to you to have a perfect stranger brought into your house, said Adela with a sympathetic air. The days wore on and Sir John saw nothing of the stranger, nor did he see Moppet. Mr. Nichols advised that the child should be kept as quiet as possible. There should be no one in her room but her mother and the nurse. The sensitive brain needed repose after the long nights of fever and delirium. Moppet was improving. That was the grand. We have turned the corner, Mr. Nichols announced delightedly on the third day after the mother's arrival. We have fought a hard fight and we are going to win. The upstairs maidservants were almost hysterical with gladness when the news was passed along the corridor and in and out of the rooms where neat housemaids in pink cotton frocks were sweeping and bedmaking. Mr. Danby went about the house with a step as light as Mercury's, and everybody began to be kind to Laddie and Lassie, who had suffered a season of snubbing and had been made to feel that nobody wanted them, except just in that ten minutes at bedtime when their mother came to their room and heard them say their prayers and hung over their beds with innumerable goodnight kisses. May we go and see Moppet? May we play with her again? asked Lassie. Not quite yet, Lassie. She will have to eat a few more dinners first. She won't mind that, said Laddie. She is very fond of dinner. She doesn't love it as you do, remonstrated Lassie. Sir John Penlyon left for Plymouth directly after the doctor's cheering announcement. He had business in Plymouth, he told Mr. Danby. Is the mother to leave place now that the child is out of danger? asked Danby while his friend was waiting for the carriage. You and the mother can please yourselves about that, 
Sir John answered, coldly. I shall be away for some days. I have to see Barton, his Plymouth solicitor. And I may go on to town. Then she had better stay till the child is well enough for them to all go home together. Sir John winced as if something had hurt him. Yes, the child would vanish out of his life, just as she had entered it. Unless, unless he should bring his mind to forget the wrong done him by the daughter he had loved. Forget his stern resolve never to forgive her or to hold communion with her after that one rebellious act. His daughter had taken her own course without regard for his wishes. She had chosen the degradation of what to his mind was a low marriage. A marriage with a man whose father kept a small, shabby shop in a small, shabby street. A self-made young man who had climbed out of the pretty tradesman's sphere by the rugged, narrow path of patronage and help from his superiors. Helped to eke out the scholarship upon which he tried to maintain himself at one of the least distinguished colleges in Oxford. A dependent at the beginning of his career, a pauper when he married. Sir John had remembered how, in the heyday of his youth, he had crushed down and conquered his love for a girl of humble origin. How, adoring her, he had yielded to his father's sentence that for him such a marriage never could be. That the future head of the Penlyon family had duties and obligations which must go before the romantic love of youth. He had bowed to that decree, and he had sacrificed the happiness of his early manhood. The landed gentry of Cornwall are a proud race. The roots of their family trees go down into the dark night of British history, when Mark was king and Tintagel was a place of royal revelry. Old as Sir John was, in spite of the progress that liberal opinion had made since Bossini was disenfranchised, he still believed in the obligations which his ancient race had imposed upon him, and when his daughter married the grocer's son, he had told himself that he would never forgive her. During the five years that followed her marriage, he held no communication with her, direct or indirect, knew nothing of her whereabouts. Letters pleading passionately for pardon came to him one after another in the first year of her married life, but they were torn and flung into the waste paper basket, unread, and by and by they ceased to come. A paragraph in a Plymouth paper told him of her husband's death in a remote province of Upper India, where he had been working as a missionary under the SPG. He had died of consumption, leaving a widow and two children. Sir John sent the paragraph to his family solicitor and requested him to communicate with Mrs. Moreland and to arrange for the payment of an annuity of 250 pounds on the understanding that she was never to molest her father either by letter or otherwise. He was to hear nothing and know nothing about her, except that the quarterly allowance was paid. And this was all he had ever known until Danby's folly had brought her children beside his hearth, and had betrayed him into loving his unforgiven daughter's child. Gradually, slowly, the secret of the children's identity had been revealed to him. Little looks and words of Danby's, Moppet's unmistakable likeness to the Reynolds picture, the fact of their Indian birth one thing after another had brought about the revelation, and he knew that the innocent little creature who had clambered onto his knee and clung about his neck was Sybil Moreland's child. Well, the situation had been cleverly brought about by his friend Danby. But Danby's treachery should make no difference. He might be tricked into loving his granddaughter, but he would not be tricked into forgiving his daughter. 
so soon as Moppet should be well and strong again, mother and children would have to leave Penlion Place. And in the meantime, it was far better that he should be away. There must be no opportunity for surprises, no chance meetings between father and daughter. Sir John saw his Plymouth solicitor, signed a lease, spent a night at the Grand Hotel, smoked a morning cigar on the hoe, and went to London by the afternoon express. He stayed at a sleepy family hotel in Albemarle Street, which the Penlions had patronized for over a century, and he bored himself exceedingly next day to the old masters, where every Reynolds, Gainsborough, Romney, or Hopner served to remind him of the shrimp girl at place, and of the little convalescent who resembled that famous picture. In the evening he dined with two or three friends at the Carlton, and discussed the prospects of the approaching session which were pronounced out of the gloomiest. He walked back to his hotel through a wintry mist which just escaped being a fog, and he wished himself back in the clear brightness of the Cornish coast, where the Atlantic surges make solemn music all night long. He had received no letter from Cornwall since he left, but he had no right to be surprised or offended at that. He had asked no one to write to him. He had not left place till Moppet was pronounced out of danger, and he had given Danby full power to deal with the mother and her children. His plan was not to return to his house until after they had all left. He thought sometimes, almost with a shudder, how deadly quiet the rambling old house would seem when those young voices and those busy little feet should be heard in the corridors no more. He bored himself in London for another day, and went to a small dinner party in Grosvenor Square, where the talk was all of the session and where its prospects were pronounced of the brightest. Somebody remarked upon the pleasantness of town at this after-Christmas season, before the opening of Parliament had brought many people back. The only time in the London year when small, snug dinners and general conversation were possible. Sir John remained mute and thought that there could be no place more dismal than London in January. It was nearly a week after he left Penlyon Place that he received the following telegram as he was dressing in the morning. Moppet has asked for you very often, and has fretted at your absence, not without danger to her health. Pray, come back. Danby. Danby again! A trick of Danby's to lure him back to his house and force on a reconciliation. He was vexed and angry with Danby, but he read that telegram twenty times over, making now very much, now very little of it and he left London by the morning express from Waterloo after telegraphing for his carriage to meet him at Lanston. In those days, Lanston was the nearest station for Bocastle and Tintagel, a long journey throughout which, in spite of the mental occupation afforded by every newspaper that could be bought, his thoughts were haunted by the image of that sick child at place and could concentrate themselves on nothing else. The news of this wide, busy world was nothing to him, foreign or domestic, Rumors of war, earthquakes, cataclysms, a general upheaval, weighed as thistledown compared with the existence of one small child. She had asked for him, loving little creature, and he had not been there to respond to her tender yearning. Those little arms had been stretched out in vain, and she had been sorry, sorry even to sickness, a creature so delicate, so frail. He hated himself for the iron pride that had made him leave his house rather than brook the presence of his disobedient daughter. It was after dark when he arrived at place. Mr. Danby and Adela were in the hall to receive him when he alighted from his carriage. It was too late for any reasonable man to expect to see children about. 
yet he felt a pang of disappointment because there is no sound or sign of a child's presence. Well, he said fretfully, addressing himself to Danby, after bestowing an automatic kiss upon Adela, your telegram has brought me back, you see. If the child wants to see me, I am here to be seen, but no doubt she is fast asleep and happy, dreaming of her doll. I don't know that. It is the want of happy sleep that has told upon her. She was doing wonderfully well, the lungs getting quite sound again, and her strength picking up. When she began to fret at not seeing you, she was always asking to see you. Where was Sir John? Where was the kind old gentleman? Why couldn't he come to see her? Was he angry with her for being ill? We explained that you were in London, would be back soon, but it was no use. However, I attached little importance to the matter. She was well cared for. She had her nearest and dearest. She would soon be strong enough to travel. We all talked to her cheerily of the return home. Children are so fond of change of any kind. It was only yesterday that I began to get anxious, and that Nichols began to fear a brain attack. She had slept badly for two or three nights, had awakened, frightened, and crying bitterly. Yesterday evening she became very feverish, and in the night she was delirious, and we were all uneasy about her. Hence my telegram. I hope I did not do wrong. You should have telegraphed sooner, said Sir John, warming his feet at the hall fire with his back to Danby. That's where you did wrong. I should like to see the child at once if she is awake. I'll run and see, said Adela. Mr. Nichols went up to her room ten minutes ago, so I dare say she is awake. Is she so bad that Nichols thinks it's needful to see her in the evening? asked Sir John gloomily. One cannot be too careful in such a case, and Nichols is always careful. That child's brain is like touch paper. Adela came running downstairs. Moppet was wide awake and dying to see him, she told Sir John. He waited for no further invitation but hastened to that stately room where so many notable men and women of the West Country had been entertained, and which was now occupied by a little figure which seemed absurdly small in the great carved four-post bed, an antique piece of furniture that looked like a Buddhist temple enshrining a very small idol under a tall and splendid canopy. The satin curtains of that ponderous four-poster had been embroidered by the women of the Penlyon family when homely Anne was queen. There was a young woman sitting on the further side of Moppet's pillows, almost hidden by the curtain, and Mr. Nichols was leaning over the tall, carved column at the front of the bed, looking down at the little creature with the flushed face and over-bright eyes. She turned her head at the opening of the door as quickly as a bird. "'Sir John! Sir John! Sir John!' she cried, clapping her feverish hands. He was beside her in a moment. He leant over the bed not even looking at the face on the other side, and clasped the tiny form to his breast. My darling, he murmured, my darling child. Why did you go away just when I began to get well? asked the innocent voice, so pure and true in its silver-sweet sound, that it seemed like the very spirit of truth itself, as something supersensuous and divine. Why did you go away? I wanted you so badly. What, Moppet? he asked hoarsely, when you had your mother. But I wanted you too. I told you at Christmas I love you next to mother, and I wanted you very much, and it made me dream and cry in the night because you wasn't here. Ah, oh, Sir John, you can't play any tune you like upon such fiddle strings as those, said Nichols gravely. 
My darling, my darling. This was almost as much as the old man could say. He sat down on the bed and Moppet nestled into his waistcoat as she used to do beside the library hearth in the dusky hour before bedtime. She nestled there and patted his strong hand with her tiny paw and laughed and cried in a breath. Why did you go away? She asked. God knows, because I was a fool, perhaps. This is mother, said Moppet, plucking the curtain aside and revealing a pale, sweet face with timid, questioning eyes. You don't know mother? Sir John stretched his hand across the bed, and the mother's hand clasped it, and the fair, pale face bent down over it, and a daughter's lips kissed it again and again, fondly. Now you know mother, said Moppet. You wouldn't ever have known her if it hadn't been for me, but I didn't be ill on purpose, you know, exclaimed Moppet. No other word of peace or of forgiveness was ever spoken between Sir John Penlyon and his only surviving child. But from that hour, Sybil Moreland assumed her rightful position in her father's house. He was not a man who liked long speeches or fuss of any kind and he took no pains to explain to his kindred or his friends how it was that the daughter who had been lost was found again. But assuredly, that episode of the Christmas hirelings drew him and his old friend Danby nearer to each other than they had ever been yet, with a friendship that neither time nor circumstance could weaken. Mrs. Moreland took her place as a daughter in her father's house, but not the first place in her father's heart. That was occupied. Moppet had crept into the citadel by a postern gate, as it were, and reigned supreme there. Sir John's affection seemed to have skipped a generation, and the grandfather's love for his grandchild was warmer and deeper than ever the father's love had been. Moppet was his Benjamin, the child of his old age, who had come to him when life was dull and barren for lack of love. Whoever might ostensibly govern at Penlyon Place, Moppet was the real master of the house inasmuch as she governed Sir John. Happily, she was a beneficent ruler full of sweet carefulness and tender thought for others, which increased with every year of her life. In all his walks and rides, Moppet was Sir John's favorite companion, taking to her shelty as a duckling to the farmyard pool, or trotting with little untiring feet by his side as he made his morning round of the gardens or the home farm. Before she had been three months at place, she knew the history, character, and capability of every horse in the stable, and she became a little wonder in her capacity for remembering and pronouncing the Greek or Latin names of tropical plants and flowers in the long range of hothouses. Laddie was dispatched to an excellent preparatory school at Truro till such time as he should be old enough to go to Eton, and a governess was engaged to help Mrs. Moreland in the care of her two little girls. Such a dear old governess, warranted not to teach too much, and to see that they changed their shoes, being none other than that very Miss Peterson summarily dismissed by Mrs. Hauberg, and whose dowdy figure, moving quietly about the house and garden, made Sir John Penlyon feel as if he were twenty years younger, by recalling the days when his motherless daughters were little children. Visitors at Penlyon Place said that Lassie grew prettier every day, and that young lady's stately manners and graceful little airs were the subject of much admiration from casual observers. While Moppet's personality was disposed of offhand as interesting, I heard Lady St. Q tell her husband that I was a 
plain likeness of the shrimp girl, she told her grandfather after an invasion of distinguished visitors. You don't mind my being plain, do you? She asked Sir John, her deep-set eyes searching his countenance. Mind? Why, in my eyes, you are the loveliest little woman in England. Mrs. Hauberk, having made up her mind that her eldest daughter was to inherit a fortune as Sir John's only niece, was somewhat disappointed at the turn affairs had taken. But Adela's less worldly nature was incapable of any such unworthy feeling, and when her uncle helped to bring about her marriage with the man she loved by a gift of five thousand pounds, she felt that she had every reason to be satisfied and grateful. And what of Bachelor Danby, without kindred or belongings in the world, drifting lightly down the river of life like a withered leaf upon a forest stream? Who shall say that Mr. Danby has neither home nor home ties when they see the welcome that awaits his coming and the grief that attends his going at Penlyon Place? The, the thing that strikes me about the ending, I love the subtlety of the ending where Sir John and his daughter, there's this unspoken statement between them that she is forgiven he wants her back in his life now personally i would have loved to have seen that those words be exchanged i would have loved to have seen him say you know i'm sorry but i think sometimes actions can speak louder than words his actions towards his granddaughter his grandchildren and his daughter i think show that he is indeed uh, redeemed, that he is forgiven for the way he treated her. And, and let's be honest, I mean, Sir, Sir John, Sir John was not a perfect man. The way he treated his daughter just because she married somebody he didn't agree with, you know, that's terrible. And, and of course, I'm looking at it from today's standards and today's um, morality and that kind of thing. I mean, the, the, the laws of society were so different back then especially how women were regarded and who who they can marry and whom they shouldn't or who they shouldn't and all those things. A lot has changed in regards to that. I get it. And it may not be fair to hold, you know, the standards of today um, up to back in the, you know, the 1800s. But that's what makes this book interesting because this book is kicking against that those ideas that this woman his daughter married for love and yes socially that was unacceptable and, and because the man was not rich he wasn't a gentleman you know he wasn't of had a certain amount of income every year <laughs> we know that sir john could have rectified that you know the, the classes were different i love that she marries him anyway and at the end of the story it's she's not the one that learns the lesson it's him Oh, and I, I love at the end with the revelation of who this, who their mother is as, as she comes in. You can just feel the tension crackling between them and how it's never really explicitly stated. But, you know, it's there and you realize when Danby is, is like, I wanted to prove to you that you had a heart, you know. Oh, man, it gets me every time. A couple moments I had to pause the recording to uh, compose myself because it, it's just so beautiful um, and, and it was such a joy to read it to you, to share that with you. So let me know what you think of the story. Well, I'll be back in August, probably around August 15th or so with the next episode. 
it'll be more a more usual episode i'll be reading the story and sharing some memories and yeah this next one if if the episode that i might have another one that comes out sooner but um, the one around August 15th, I'm going to be talking about my birthday, and I've got a great story to read in regards to that, as uh, well as I'm going to share a memory myself about uh, one of the best gifts I was given, and it wasn't even a Christmas gift, but uh, that's all I'll say about it. I'll leave you, leave you hanging, leave you intrigued as to what that could be. Come back for uh, this next episode here in a couple weeks. I'll tell you more about it. Thank you for taking the time to to spend with me as I read to you these wonderful Christmas stories. Be kind to each other and do good. And remember, there is nothing in the world more irresistibly contagious than laughter and good humor. Have a very Merry Christmas.